Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. The past, the British novelist L.P. Hartley once wrote, is a foreign country. They do things differently there. It's no doubt true, but if the technological advances of the last 30 years are anything to go by, the past is nothing like as foreign as the future will be. Whether we're thinking about artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, cybernetics, or just plain old climate change, We live at a time when we are expecting an unprecedented rate and perhaps direction of change. Prophecy is a mugs game at the easiest of times, and these aren't the easiest of times. Martin Rees is the 15th Astronomer Royal, having also been Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and President of the Royal Society. He is an internationally renowned cosmologist, former BBC Wreath lecturer, author of over 500 academic papers and of several popular science books, the most recent of which peers into that foreign country that is the future and is called, on the future, Prospects for Humanity. Martin, welcome to Reading Our Times. Good to be with you. There's a tension I sensed or a dynamic that runs through your book between technology and humanity or or more specifically between what humans are able to achieve scientifically and what they can achieve morally. And I want to explore both of those elements, but I want to begin with the first and, and to start with the kind of catastrophes that Hollywood loves. Asteroids, earthquakes, volcanoes, giant flares from the sun, that kind of thing. They're actually, you, you begin by saying, some of the things that we should be less worried about in the future, aren't they? Absolutely, because we know they occur, we can estimate their likelihood, we know they're very rare, uh, but my book is more concerned with the extra threats that are due to human beings, either our collective impact on the planet, on its climate, its biodiversity, etc., or because we're empowered by technology, and as you say, there's a big gap between what we can do with technology and what we should do with technology. And if I can just add something, um, I don't see my book as just a science book. It's got just as much of politics and ethics in it as of science. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things, as I said, that runs through it. This isn't just predicting scientific futures. It's very much about the interaction between our humanity and our moral capability and our collective capability and our scientific ability, isn't it? Right, yes. On the borderline between those two is pandemics. And I can't really begin anywhere other than pandemics. We're having this conversation as we're coming out of the third coronavirus wave in this country. And you had a bet, didn't you, with Stephen Pinker? You mentioned this in the book. Tell us about your bet with Stephen Pinker about pandemics. Yes. Well, of course, pandemics are something I was concerned about. And I was worried in particular that even a 1% death rate would overwhelm hospitals and cause a breakdown in social order. Uh, Now, that hasn't happened. The death rate is about 0.2 or 0.3% in the US and the UK. 
but of course it's a danger. Uh, I did have a bet with Steven Pinker that there would be a pandemic by 2020, and my timing was right, but I'm going to probably lose the bet because um, I made the bet in the context of what is my worst nightmare for the next 20 years, which is pandemics which are engineered rather than natural. And this pandemic, we suspect, transferred naturally from animals to humans, and only if it turned out that it was an accidental release from the Wuhan laboratory will I win my bet with Pinker. So it was very specified. But of course, uh, pandemics are indeed a natural phenomenon, but aggravated by the fact that we are living in high-density environments, etc. You say at one point in the book, which is a sentence that sent a bit of a shiver down my spine, really, whether or not a pandemic gets global grip may hinge on how quickly a Vietnamese poultry farmer can report any strange sickness. Well, I mean, it was the wrong country and the wrong animal, but a, but a pretty good pretty good prediction, really. Well, and I think uh, to amplify that, I would say that in retrospect, given that the pandemic is going to cost the world more than $20 trillion dollars, it would have been well worth having a more elaborate scheme to get forewarning by, for instance, uh, monitoring animals and all that and ensuring that reporting was quick. Lots of things we should do to enhance preparedness. Has the experience of the last year or so changed anything radically in your mind? Have the way we responded to the pandemic changed your views? Well, I think... What is sad is how unprepared we were, in particular how unprepared we were compared to some of the countries in the Far East. And I think the reason for that is that they had experienced the SARS pandemic, which wasn't quite so serious. In Taiwan, for instance, they had governments which were trusted more than our government was here, and therefore they were able to cope rather better than we managed to. And of course, in this country, we were somewhat prepared for another influenza pandemic. But, of course, this coronavirus is rather different in that it leads to a requirement for protective equipment, protective clothing, which we didn't have. And also, it's not so obvious, or certainly wasn't so obvious, how quickly a vaccine could be developed. So there are lots of things that could have been done, and let's hope we have learned some lessons. And on the more social front, there's another very important thing which I hope has been learned, which is that we are undervaluing some of the most important workers in the country. I'm thinking not just of the health workers, I'm thinking of carers, bus drivers, and people like that. They're the ones who've suffered in the pandemic. They're the ones who are underappreciated. And of course, uh, people like me are lucky because we can work from comfortable homes, etc. So I really hope that this uh, pandemic will have the effect of making people realise how unjustifiable the huge inequalities are within countries like the UK. I do think that is a very important point, isn't it? Because there are lots of lessons we might learn from, as you say, our unpreparedness for a pandemic of this nature. But if you consider in the way in which in this country, the health services and more broadly public services have stepped up to the plate with people who have literally put their lives at risk and who are not sufficiently, not well remunerated for it, Mm -hmm. you could argue that in some ways actually we've responded more positively than we might otherwise have thought. Well, of course, we we have high respect for the health service, etc. And they did their job under huge pressure. But I think we've got to realise that the 
health service has been under tremendous pressure because of government costs in the last 10 years. And I think one more general thing we've learned from the pandemic is that there's a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. And one example is that it's risky to depend on a single supply chain for essential components in manufacturing when one link in that chain breaks and it screws things up completely. That's one thing. And it's also is good to have spare capacity in hospitals. For instance, Germany had far more spare intensive care beds in its hospitals than we did. And I think we've learned that it's not a false economy to uh, have this sort of buffer, as it were, to deal with emergencies. Let's talk about the most obvious threat to the future of humanity and in many ways the future of the world, which is climate change which, of course, you talk about in the book. I spoke to Steven Pinker a couple of years ago after he published his book on Enlightenment Now, and Mm -hmm. he's very pro-techno-fixes. You're more ambiguous about this, aren't you? I mean, it's not that the techno-fixes aren't important, but they're not sufficient in and of themselves? No, I think they are essential if we are to meet the full target of zero net CO2 by 2050. There are some fairly easy things we can do, obviously, uh, better insulated houses and being more economical of energy and things like that and uh, electrifying more things. But the last 20% is very hard without new technology. Uh, So I think he's completely right. But I'd like to make another point, which I've made in some op-ed articles I've written, which is that if we look at the world perspective, we are emitting about 1.5% of the world's CO2 emissions. We being the UK. We being the UK, yes. And so, in my view, if we do succeed in uh, going to net zero, it'll just make 1.5% difference to the world emission. But we have more than 1.5% of the world's clever ideas. Uh, And so my feeling is that we ought to have a really intensive programme of developing clean energy and all the things that go with it, uh, storage, smart grids and all those things. Uh, Because if we can do this at the cost of those uh, technologies comes down, then if we do this in collaboration with countries in the developing world, India and Africa, we can help them to develop their economy where they need more energy per capita, not less, Mm. but do this without producing more CO2. So we Mm. can make more difference to the world if we prioritize developing technologies, not just for us, but because they hopefully will be beneficial to the rest of the world Mm. uh, where they will go on building coal-fired power stations to meet their perfectly understandable needs for more energy if they can't afford the alternatives. Got mm. to bring down the cost of clean energy. There are some developing technologies that are talked about like they're uh, almost like they're silver bullets in this area, aren't there? I mean, there are things like ideas of scattering particles in the upper atmosphere to reflect the sun's rays, or there's, of course, there's a big project on developing workable nuclear fusion in south of France at the moment. Yes, are yes. they pie in the sky? Well, I mean, nuclear fusion is long-term, but not pie in the sky, and is um, plainly something that would be a huge benefit if it comes about. Geoengineering of the kind you just mentioned uh, is something about which we should all be ambivalent, because first of all, you've got to understand the climate much better than we do in order to be confident that any intervention of that kind, putting stuff in the upper atmosphere, is going to do what you wanted to do without having uh, downsides, uh, which are unpredictable. And secondly, it's storing up problems for the future, because if we cool down the earth in that way, without stopping CO2 emissions, 
then we've got to go on doing it. Otherwise, it'll be a real crisis if we stop. And moreover, other effects of enhanced CO2, like ocean acidification, etc., would not be stemmed in any way by this. So that particular kind of geoengineering is something we should be very, very cautious about indeed. There's another kind which involves directly sucking CO2 out of the air. That uh, would be benign. Um, because we'd just be undoing the geoengineering we've done by pumping in the extra CO2. But that is very expensive in terms of energy use and very not feasible. It's going to be very hard to persuade developing countries to uh, invest extra money in doing that sort of thing. So uh, I think that is benign, but probably economically and politically not so feasible. And that is distinct from carbon capture and storage isn't it which is taking the c2 out at the source as it were and storing it which is very much a viable option isn't it well even that's rather difficult at scale but right. that is more efficient if you capture the co2 from places where it's concentrated namely near the power stations uh, rather than just from uh, the atmosphere generally mm. so th- that is feasible and of course if that can be done then we can get to net zero by keeping some gas power stations mm. um, but uh, i think it's not at all clear that carbon capture and storage, even of that kind, can be done to sufficient scale. You've got to store literally billions of tonnes of CO2 every year. Yes, yes. Climate change has been a, an emerging threat for, I guess, 200 years, I know, since, since the early years of the Industrial Revolution. More, Much more recent, perhaps not as much of a threat, but certainly as much in the forefront of our mind is the astonishing development of artificial intelligence over the last 20 years or so. And you do talk quite a bit about this in mm-hmm. the book. Um, it's worth just rehearsing a little of what you say about the the way in which not only is artificial intelligence able now to beat the global champion of Go, this fiendishly complex game, but yes. I think you say at one point, effectively teaches itself not only to play, but to become a global champion by learning off itself within 24 hours or something extraordinary Mm. like that. Yes, well, of course, computers have the advantage of speed. Uh, They can calculate millions of times, billions of times faster than we can, and that's the advantage they have if they're given specified goals. And, as you say, they've beaten world champions in chess and go. In a somewhat more useful context, they've beaten human beings in understanding the mechanism for what's called protein folding, which is an important challenge to biologists. So they can do some things, and uh, I hope one day they may help to do the calculation of string theory to see if that's the correct theory to understand uh, the natural world. But let's bear in mind that these are special purpose things. Computers and robots can't interact with the real world as well as we can, And they don't have common sense, even when they do. And so I think there's rather too much hype, perhaps, about the machines taking over. They will certainly help. They'll be able to uh, do routine tasks like monitoring electric grids to use them more efficiently um, and traffic flows in cities. And indeed, they will enable the Chinese to have the kind of planned economy that Marx and Stalin could only dream of because they have all the data and could process it. So they could have a really efficient planned economy. So can do things like that. But what it can't do is interact with the real world. And if you think of the jobs that can be replaced by computers, obviously one hopes that the soul-destroying jobs like working in our Amazon warehouse and a call center can be replaced. But one hopes that the people who work in those environments can be uh, paid instead as carers to each other where being a human is important. Mm. And to take another example, I can't really imagine 
if we could ever replace um, gardeners and plumbers, effectively, because uh, said if you live in a rather old house like mine, to actually uh, work your way around it and find the pipes is something which you can't really imagine a robot ever doing as well as a human being. I'm interested in exploring the extent to which this barrier to artificial intelligence's development or progress is a practical one or a principled one. I suppose I'm thinking of Roger Penrose here, who famously wrote, didn't he, in, I think it was in The Emperor's New Mind, mm. that in principle machines couldn't be conscious because there was something that fundamentally prevented them from becoming conscious. Is that a view you share? Not particularly. I mean, I think Penrose is a great man and that book is wonderful because it gives his perspective on a relativity quantum theory, Turing machines, consciousness and all that, and uh, uh, that's well worth reading. But I don't think many people buy the whole package, mm. which includes believing that there's a commonality between the mystery of quantum gravity and the mystery of consciousness, which mm. he said, was he thought it was microtubules in the brain, etc. Yes. I think very few people believe that. These are two big mysteries, not just one. And so the nature of consciousness still remains a mystery. But of course, to answer your question more specifically, there is an issue of whether very advanced um, robots, which have good sensors, as well as huge posting power, whether they will be conscious in which case we need to respect them and worry if they're underemployed or bored, etc., or not. And, And I think the jury's out on that. I think most people would suspect that consciousness is a sort of emergent property in sufficiently complex networks of that kind, mm. but it's not guaranteed. I mean, it could be that consciousness is specific to a particular kind of wet hardware in human skulls and yeah. wouldn't be manifested. And this, incidentally, is a very important point in determining how we treat far future robots. But also, if you look in the very far future, which I discussed a bit in my book, about scenarios where humans are eventually superseded by some sort of electronic entities then will be near immortal and they can spread through space, etc. And you can take two actions, two attitudes. You can say, well, we're not the combination of evolution. Great if these uh, entities which can surpass us can spread through the universe, as it were. But on the other hand, if, despite their capabilities, they don't have comprehension and don't have consciousness, then, of course, we would perhaps deplore the fact there will be no entities able to appreciate the wonder and mystery and beauty of the universe. Mm. So it's a, it's a question which uh, is not just semantic, like do submarines swim or something like that. Well, we're talking about the extent to which artificial intelligence and robots can become conscious and can become human, I guess, in one regard. We can look at the same question through the other lens of the telescope, as it were, and look at the extent to which humans can roboticize themselves or freeze themselves or achieve immortality you have a lovely line halfway through the book in which you say you'd rather end your days in an english churchyard than a californian refrigerator (laughs) with regards to the context of cryogenics and the attempts that some people have to merge their own bodies with artificial constructions and also to achieve some kind of immortality is this science fiction or are they onto something well I think at the extremes, this is probably science fiction. But of course, there are serious issues about human enhancement, not just by cyborgs, by adding on some plug-in memory to our brain, as it were, but Mm. also by uh, modifying our our genome, the genome of our progeny. And uh, the ethical questions of the latter kind are already 
in front of us. I mean, I think it's acceptable to gene edit so as to remove the single gene that causes Huntington's disease or something like mm. that. But if it ever became possible to isolate the combination of genes that enhance humans, make them better looking, more intelligent and such like, then there's the ethical issue. Should that be done? Is this a more fundamental kind of inequality, etc.? So human enhancement of some kind is likely in principle to be possible. One would need to um, uh, use artificial intelligence to look at the genome and see which combination of genes is optimum for the quality you're trying to enhance, and then the ability also to synthesize a genome with that combination of genes in it. Mm. Neither of those can be done yet, but they may be feasible in 50 years' time, and then one will have this potentiality. But, of course, that then raises the question, how far can you go, in particular, to what extent can one... Uh, improve people's lifespan mm. and there may be inherent limits to that we don't know uh, but i think the uh, the current uh, cryogenics where you freeze the body in liquid nitrogen etc they are <laughs> i think very unlikely to to succeed and as a limited appeal as well really i mean it's, <laughs> it doesn't strike one as a hugely dignified way of ending your time on earth does it no 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 it doesn't and i think i say in my book another point I and mean, it's slightly selfish because supposing it did work and supposing the uh, the companies didn't go bust and really preserve your body, and there really was a time when one could revive people from this state, which I would say is very, very unlikely indeed, because uh, their brains would mm. be destroyed, then these people would be putting a burden on their successors. They'd be refugees mm. from the past. And we feel an obligation to uh, look after Amazonian tribesmen who've lost their habitat or refugees, etc. But these people who were... Uh, pay to have chronics, they're really intentionally putting a burden on future generations. Also, I think there's a fascinating preconception of what it is to be human in that discussion, because people who cryogenically freeze themselves are implicitly seeing the human as an organism that can be frozen and thawed according to will. But you hint at one point in your book, it's one thing being re-thawed out as an organism in 5,000 years' time. But if you don't have your friends, if you don't have your family, if you don't have all the relationships and connections that actually make up your humanity where you are, yes, yes. that's a pretty bleak existence, isn't it? It is, and that leads to another point I make in my book, because I do think it's quite likely that there will be genetic techniques which will be used and will, in fact, change human beings themselves in a timescale of a few centuries. I think it's quite on the cards. And this is a game changer because in the past, changes have happened on the very slow timescale of Darwinian evolution, which takes hundreds of thousands of years to change things. And that's why, as I say in my book, we can um, appreciate the uh, art and literature written in classical times two or three thousand years ago, because mm. the one thing that hasn't changed is the mentality of human beings. But I go on to say that we've got no guarantee that the entities who are our progeny a few hundred years from now will have anything more than an algorithmic understanding of our emotions and how we behaved, because there could be changes. And indeed, future evolution it's not going to be Darwinian. It's going to be what I call secular intelligent design. Mm. It's going to be modifying uh, things. And this will happen on a technological timescale, just centuries or even less, mm. rather than the timescales of Darwinian selection. And so that's why it's very, very hard to make any sensible predictions about the future, even to the extent we could in the past. Mm. And uh, incidentally, one paradox which I address in my book, which I think is quite important for long-term planning, is... Um, 
the impression we get when we look at a medieval cathedral, which we know this was built by people who thought the world may only last a thousand years, whose horizons were very limited in space as well, but they built cathedrals which they knew would not be finished in their lifetime. Whereas now we find it very hard to plan a hundred years ahead, despite the fact that we've got huge horizons in space and time. But the reason is not such a paradox is that in medieval times, although they thought there might be an apocalypse in a thousand years, they didn't think the lives of their children or grandchildren would be any different from theirs. So they'd be there to appreciate the finished cathedral. Whereas now, things are changing so fast in many respects that we don't really know what the preferences and tastes will be of people in the second half of this century. And this yeah. is, of course, an impediment to, uh, to planning, if you quite, don't quite know what would be needed. I'm glad you raised this issue of time because it does run through much of what you say. And also, I remember how one of your previous books, when it was published in the UK, it came out under the title of Our Final Century. And I think I'm right in saying when it was published in the US, it was under the title Our Final Hour, which I think brilliantly epitomizes <laughs> this problem we have with actually planning long term. Yes. And the Americans like instant gratification and the reverse. Yes. Yes. It reminds me of the Jean-Claude Juncker quote, which you also mentioned in the, in the book about, I think yes. he's talking about specifically climate change, but he says at one point, we all know what to do. We just don't know how to get re-elected after we've done it. There is this mismatch, isn't there, between the planning we need to make to ensure a wider good over the long term and the natural electoral and even worse kind of consumption patterns that we live by. Yes. And I think if, on climate change, I think that is a case when we can make a fairly firm prediction. I think we can predict that if we go on as now and if the developing world catches up, then we will be producing CO2 at a rate that will lead to some uh, possibly irreversible climate change which we want to avoid. So I think that is where we do need to take action. But as you say, the effect is not immediate, it's long term. We're, we're like the um, frog in the warming saucepan that doesn't realise his fate until it's too late. That's the situation. Mm. And the reason is, as Juncker said, that people think about the short term, understandably, most people's lives are pretty complicated anyway. They don't think long term. And I think that is why it's very important that the public should be mindful of these because the public does care about what happens at least in the lifetime of their grandchildren who will still be alive in the 22nd century, we hope. Mm. And that's a longer time scale than uh, business people apply when they discount future benefits in putting up mm. an office blocks or something like that. Uh, so I think if we can make the public care, then politicians will respond. And in that context, charismatic figures can make a difference. I mean, the papal encyclical in 2015, where the Pope has a billion followers in South America, Africa and East Asia, that had a big effect. He got a standing ovation at the UN. It eased the path to consensus at the Paris conference that year. And, of course, our secular Pope, David Attenborough, has had a similar <laughs> effect uh, through his wonderful TV programs. In particular, he has alerted the public to something which wasn't on the agenda very highly until that time, namely pollution of the oceans, mm. things like that. So it's important that scientists and other experts ensure their voice is amplified by charismatic figures. So 
So we've moved our conversations from the technical and the scientific issues to the human ones that they have to march in lockstep with in order for us to build a good common future together. I mean, at the end, you talk about there's no scientific impediment to achieving a sustainable and and secure world but also that science needs to be guided by values that science alone can't provide Mm -hmm. and and that's just dealing with issues like climate change when we broaden it out to the extents and ways in which we should for example accord human rights to artificial intelligence or we should modify human genome to improve the human condition these are all ineradicably moral issues that demand certain values and principles to shape our thinking. That's true, but I think we need to think immediately because if you look at the present world and our present knowledge, we already have the capability to provide a decent life, not quite American style, but a perfectly good life for everyone in the world. And of course, we have a billion people below the poverty line. We have a situation where the richest 2,000 people in the world could, if they chose, double the income of the bottom billion. And it's a real ethical indictment that we're not doing this. And again, to indicate a context where I disagree with my friend Stephen Pinker, he quite rightly argues that uh, on average life is better now than in the Middle Ages, better life expectancies and and literacy and all the rest of it. And that is true. But In medieval times, there wasn't much they could have done to improve things. The gap between the way things were and the way they could be wasn't that great. Whereas now, it's true we're better off, but the gap between the way things actually are and the way they could be, Mm. even with our present knowledge, is very wide. And, And that, I think, is a reason for doubting any sort of global ethical progress in the last few centuries. I think that's a very profound point, but you can almost draw a comparison with a more recent historical period. If you and I were having this conversation, say 140 years ago, say 1880 or so, uh, there would have been a much stronger sense in the air that the technological achievement we had achieved as a people, the British people in the 19th century, would be matched by a comparable moral achievement. And Mm. what we saw in Spain in the 20th century, that the two do not necessarily work together. And now we are, as you say, conscious of enormous technological capacity, but we are at best ambivalent about Mm. our moral capacity as a species, aren't we? Yes, we are. And um, for, for the reason I mentioned, I don't think we can claim that collectively morality is better than it was in the Middle Ages, because the gap between the way things are and the way they could be is much wider than it was. But there's an extra concern, which is a challenge to governance of all kinds, and that is that the technologies that we're developing now are, in some cases, small-scale, producing a, uh, a new dangerous pathogen or causing a massive cyber attack can be done by a small group of people or even an individual. It's not like building a nuclear weapon, which requires large special purpose infrastructure, or building large structures for transport, etc. And this is, I think, going to be a big chance of governance, because there are three things we want to preserve if possible. Uh, One is uh, freedom, the other is security, and the other is privacy. And I think there's a tension between those three, and different nations are going to adopt a different balance. Mm. And I think this is going to be a big challenge in the future. 
So the word that comes to my mind in light of that is fragile in the sense that we do have an extraordinarily intricate and efficient and profound and, and humanising system, but it's also quite a fragile one. Uh, indeed, and it, it can be disrupted and uh, because society is so interconnected, then you can imagine we are so dependent on things. I mean, to take another example, if the internet had failed during the pandemic, then well, we wouldn't be talking to each other now and indeed there'd be real global problems on a far bigger scale. Uh, so yes. we are far more dependent on these vulnerable technologies than we were in the past. We're not self-sufficient mm. on a local scale. And of course, on average, this is a huge benefit, but it does make us more vulnerable. I want to close by asking you two questions. They're very different questions, but I'm interested in both of them. And one is about yourself and one is about the future. You describe yourself towards the end of the book as a practising but unbelieving Christian <laughs> You write warmly of John Polkinghorne, who died actually a few months ago, who taught you at Cambridge, who mm-hmm. I think he was a professor of mathematical physics yes. and became a, an ordained minister. And you've already quoted and uh, mentioned Laudato Si and the Pope. So I sense with you a warmth towards Christianity, towards faith, even if you clearly don't share Christian beliefs. That's right. I mean, I, I, I don't accept any, any dogma. I just can't believe any of it. But I do think that, especially in this country, for instance, we benefited so much from the heritage that's left us with these wonderful buildings and music and opportunities to celebrate rites of passage like births and funerals in these wonderful ways that I would be sad if they were to decline. So I would be Mm -hmm. sad if the uh, English church were to decline. And when we have so many things that divide us in modern society, something which brings us together, different parts of society, and uh, relates us to our ancestors, as it were, is something that we should cherish. Mm. But also I sense that there's a a, a touch of the ethical function as well. I'm struck by the way in which you talk about the impact that Pope Francis and Laudato see can have on our environmental concerns globally Mm -hmm. and how if science isn't able to provide the values that it needs to steer scientific developments, you need to draw on not solely religious by any means, but you need to draw on a range of, of serious ethical traditions in order to to develop that. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Let me close in with, with a really unfair question about the future. You, you say uh, right at the beginning that experts have a poor record <laughs> of, of forecasting and, and also you quote one of your predecessors, Astronomer Royal, in 1950, saying that space travel was utter build. So we're not saying that scientists are always going to be prophets in this. But right. I want to ask you, we have this conversation, let's say, in 40, 50 years' time. What will we be looking back and saying, goodness me, that was the significant change of the middle period of the 21st century. Well, I think we will say it was a time when technology did run ahead fast and did present us with problems, which we may by then realise we haven't coped with very well, but let's hope we have coped with them well. And I think we may be realising that we have, through our neglect and delay, left the world for our successors in a worse state than the one we inherited from our ancestors in terms of lots of extinctions um, and the climate changing in a way that is deleterious for humans. The book is called On the Future, Prospect for Humanity. Martin Rees, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much for having me. Next week, 
I'll be talking to Angela Saini about race and science. These are the things we have to be careful of, how the boundaries of race seem to shift over time and who we vilify and who we demean and dehumanise changes over time based on the politics. And that also seeps into biology. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>